Good morning, friends. It's good to see you, good to be with you. My name is Nelson. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, this morning, we're continuing in our fall series, The Deeply Formed Life. In his book by the same title, pastor and author Rich Villadas considers five key values where we tend to be shallowly formed. Uh, and he tries to spell out how then we might enter into the deep formation offered through the way of Jesus. And so, so far, we've looked at uh, contemplative rhythms. We have looked at racial justice. We have looked at interior examination. Two Sundays ago, we started to explore sexual wholeness for a culture that splits bodies from souls. And today is part two on that. We're going to focus today on deeply formed practices of sexual wholeness. And to be clear, it's not a sermon on sex positions. Sorry to disappoint anyone. Nor is it a, a sermon about the love nest of Jesus. Did anyone notice the keynote typo? Love keynote typos. <laughs> Anyways, not, neither of those things. I'm delighted this morning because you all get to hear from a few folks besides me. And uh, so... Um, this is a collective teaching. I'm excited about that. I'm invited a few members of our lead team to offer their voices, to share their unique lived embodied perspectives on several of the practices that are held out by Villadas in the related chapter. So I'm going to bookend our teaching moment today. And in the middle, we're going to hear from Chelsea McKenzie and Carrie Reese and Peter Mogan. And that's the order that we're going to go in. So everyone ready? Let's do this. Um, this is, wasn't planned, but huge shouts out to uh, Hillary McBride this morning. I've, I'm, quote, I'm about to quote her, so you should read her book. She was with us last year, and she helped us with a series that we called Embodied Advent. Uh, I wish she could be here this morning to offer her voice, but we have her voice through a quote. In her first sermon, she reminded us that our faith tradition is centered on the fact that our God became a body. And that this says something about God and what God loves, but it also says something about us and our bodies. Love this quote. To remember that Jesus was a body, a beating heart, a spine, eyelashes, calloused feet with genitals, and likely some quite unruly back hair, is to remember that God loved the world of matter so much that God became matter, to show us how matter is holy too. This compels us to consider that the heartbeat of Christianity is not necessarily the conquering of the body, that the main message of Jesus is not to say the right prayer so that we get out of here someday, but rather that to be like Jesus is to come into life, to come into being a body to come into the pain and the joy of others and the reckoning of our role in that. Come on and say it, Dr. Hillary. To be like Jesus is to come into being a body. To be like Jesus also is to recognize that every body has a story. Our bodies tell stories of pain and joy of pleasure and frustration, of abuse and nurture and regret and shame and love. And we experience all these stories in our 
bodies. And so because that's true, we need to come to terms with those stories and to try to do so in ways where we can be deeply formed in them. Here's some questions then I'm inviting us to hold together. How do we honor our bodies? How do we honor the bodies of others? How can we reject the scripts, lies, and disordered appetites that entrench us in deeply deformed ways? How might we live into greater wholeness, healing, integrity, and love in this area of our lives? How do we love God and others well with our bodies and with our sexuality? So these questions help us live into the larger question. What are the deeply formed practices of sexuality that can help us reflect God's desire for our world? So I think one good place to start is by naming some of the messages we've received. So we call this the practice of naming sexually deformed messages. What are the scripts we've inherited? Regardless of where they come from, parents, extended families, friends, the church, Netflix, pornography. Paradoxically, the shallow messages we receive too often form us in deep ways. I, I think I was exposed first to porn around age 11. Do you remember how old you were? It's not news to any of us that we have been formed in a culture that normalizes objectification, particularly of women's bodies. And so the ongoing work of formation is to name and reject the messages that run deep in us. A few examples. That there are some bodies that are worthy of love and others that are not. That any impulse I have must be satisfied. That sex and sexual performance define me. That sex is only a physical act, not a means of loving communication. Villitus shares a story of a male congregant who struggled with sexual addiction. The man's earliest memory of discussing sexuality with his father happened when he was 13. His dad, who was drunk at the time, came down to his room and gave him the talk, which took about five minutes, was incredibly awkward and mostly incoherent. And then he handed his son a Playboy magazine saying, just keep it between your mattress so your mother doesn't find out. It's hard to overestimate the harm that can be done in just a few minutes. So this, this little story contains at least three more messages that are desperately difficult to unlearn. That sexuality is inherently awkward topic. That secrecy and sexuality go hand in hand. And that if women don't look like what's in the magazine, something's wrong with them. So naming such messages does not fully address the gaps, the poor guidance that shaped us, but the value in this practice is that it exposes the lies and scripts that the Spirit of God longs for us to lay down. Now, for those who have been sexually abused, this practice is complex and difficult and deserves all the tenderness and compassion we can muster. The trauma that's stored in our bodies does not, of course, get miraculously undone merely by recalling the ways we've been formed. But I wonder if it can be a start. Back at the beginning of this series, I suggested that opening 
to God is the primary grounding metaphor we ought to carry with us when it comes to our spiritual lives. That opening is the essence of prayer and any spiritual practice. So it seems to me then that naming the illusions and the lies we've been handed is one practice, one, that helps us further open ourselves to God's love, to the love that more than anything desires our liberation. And the naming of old, deformed, harmful scripts, we become open to receive new ones that feel and sound like good news. So, we may believe we'll be loved only if we have sex with someone. The good news is we've been given is that we're worthy of love as we are. Maybe you've built an identity on the need to sexually conquer others. The good news tells us that our true identity lies in surrender to God's grace. It could be that we've lived with deep shame about our bodies. And the good news is that the crucified body of Jesus has the power to heal the shame we carry. Chelsea, your turn, sister. Come on up. Let me check my fly here for a second. There we go. <laughs> Nelson, could you also um, keep an eye on time? If I get to like the seven minute mark and I'm still mid-ramble, just do a little stand like you're embodying my message and I'll know what that means. Um, yeah, I have notes on an iPhone so I can't time myself and rock and roll at the same time. I, this was so challenging. Social bonding is something I believe in, but I, um, I am rusty right now. I think we're all a bit rusty. I was also convicted by the atrophy of this trait in myself. So I'm going to take us through a bit of a U-form shape that Lance would have described or Peter often refers to of um, reflecting social bonding through how I've actually done it poorly the majority, I think, of my life. Um, Villetus' book talks about, uh, he referenced Genesis 1 and 2 and... Um, the difference between kind of genital sexuality and social sexuality. And as a single person, largely raised in the church, my withwardness, my sexualness, my desire to be around bodies and people has been um, largely platonic. And um, that is how my friendship forms, is a reflection of those who I hang out with. Um, that has looked like quite a rush of a hummingbird floating from like soda pop fountain to event to home house party to conference. I even once asked um, Casey, who's in my neighborhood group, how do you actually relax on a vacation? Because my vacations look like going to conferences and writing it off and enjoying being at meetings and things like that. So my style of being in the world was almost... Um, it felt really rich to some extent, but I didn't understand that it was also shallowly formed in, in a different way. So for me, um, one of my references to Hillary will be when I first went to her very first pilot retreat in Ojai, I recognized that I too participated in my own objectification. And what participating in my own objectification looked like in a non fully sexually expressed way, but in a socially expressed way, looked like I knew how to play a role that was expected of me in almost every circumstance, in church, in friendships, in family, in, um, gosh, from when I was the pastor's kid and I helped lead Sunday school, or when I 
I went to work and I knew how to read my boss's mind. Some of that's trauma-informed, some of that needs some therapy, but those were how I participated in roles. And I think we can take those roles into shallow friendships and think our friendships are born uh, or are rested in like a concrete space when they are just bouncing off um, shallow roles. And I think COVID was a significant piece of me learning and unlearning that. One of the things Villadis reminds us is um, that in the UK, there, uh, Theresa May appointed a loneliness minister because in the United Kingdom, people are so lonely and it's so apparent. And what that's creating is ripple effects into their workplaces, into their family life, into addiction and life expectancy. It's pretty incredible. Um, I could see that that was true for me as I headed into COVID as well. Um, Maybe we'll get to there in just a second. But physical proximity was no longer possible in COVID, and emotional closeness for me um, was so tied to what I thought physical proximity was. Um, the author here references a person that uh, Villadis speaks to um, a relationship he has with a woman who's in her 60s and is a model of uh, mature singleness. And her reflection is, in Christ, she's filled herself with being uh, known with the, with the idea that she's chosen, that she's loved, and that she has almost a marriage-like quality with Christ, that her spirituality is what forms her. And out of that fullness, she is able to give and to receive in a social context. And I think when I've learnt and read about Philippians 2, verse 1, for example, where Eugene Peterson describes deep-spirited friendships, um, in that same passage, it talks about how Christ empties himself. I thought to be a deep-spirited friend, I needed to empty myself into friendships, into roles. And I, I've been working through uh, redefining that and allowing Christ to fill me. And out of that flourishing, I get to forget myself temporarily, forgetting my ego or my agenda or my role, and out of that fullness, pouring back into someone else, else's fullness. But Christ's ability to empty himself is only possible because he's divine. I don't get to empty myself for you. You don't get to ask that of me, and that is not what a healthy friendship um, is going to be formed out of my own emptiness. Um, I recall just a, an object lesson that brought it home was a long time ago. I didn't tell them I was going to mention them, but Jordan and Olivia came up, or at least Jordan in my mind, was talking about a sense of belonging, and that belonging in earnest started when they started taking initiative for reciprocity and hospitality. And I thought of myself and even a sense of belonging here and what it feels like to belong here. And um, when I was uncertain of friendships in COVID, uh, as we were coming out of that, I came to um, a park gathering of artisan, and as I walked up, I remember feeling just my heart beating and saying out loud, I belong here too, I belong here too, it's okay, these are, these are people who know me. And I was recognizing that it had been so long that the physical proximity had been all I was used to being certain about, that the emotional closeness or the possibility of belonging. So to be um, in even a leadership position or a servant position or being here for four years, still approaching a park gathering and having to talk myself into belonging, that shone a light on the fact that I had not reciprocated or initiated or asked many of you into my life in a way. I had been invited to join in and been a participant, like that hummingbird floating into house parties, but I had not um, tried to deeply form a bond with you. And that speaks to some of 
the loneliness I think that was exposed for me in COVID. Um, one of the things that has been possible to rebuild and understand what deep intimacy can look like has been um, progressively joining each um, my friends or creating opportunities for connection and then being cognizant of my own needs in those connections and watching how I'm not conforming, but I'm um, asking or I'm offering. And, and those dynamic differences are really neat. One anecdote that I found really helpful was, not anecdote, story, was recently as I've reconnected with some friends who've had to be very uh, COVID cautious and not open their life to me, one of my best friends, um, we went out for coffee and she met me with flowers and she's a mom and has a busy life and has little kids and, and she apologized that she couldn't be the, the friend that I would probably have wanted during this time because as a teacher she was having to um, be aware of the um, ways she was um, possibly transmitting and so I, I wasn't able to be part of her bubble and she knew how hurtful that was and how lonely it, it would have been to have your best friend not able to come over but she gave me flowers and the flowers I don't know if she thought this through but they're very fragrant and they were in my room for two weeks and I remember the smell of the irises in my room and thinking with every breath I could remember my friend loved me deeply and even if we were apart I was known and she was known and um, reforming friendships based on that deep knowing has been a joy of having gone through the lonely time of understanding all the breaks in friendships that happened over COVID, being intentional about their rebuilding in a different way. Um, one thing that non-neuronormative brains will struggle with is object permanence in relationships. Often if someone is not in your presence, you may think that they are not a part of your life. Um, I think of autism or ADHD or things like that. I think I have some ADHD um, diagnosis pending. Um, but <laughs> don't take my word for it yet. Uh, but maybe from this speech style, you're already getting, getting the vibe. Uh, but <laughs> yeah. Yeah, let's just bring this recording to my psychologist. Um, but when my friends weren't physically there, I had a hard time reminding myself. So I wrote a lot of lists. I prayed through a lot of lists. I prayed through my photo albums that reminded me of, of the times we spent together. I think of, um, I think of how to rebuild uh, a sense of permanency. And I, I remember feeling friendships. If you imagine me, and then there's these threads outside of me, my friendships and roles felt like this external dynamic. And slowly, let, let's say I'm reconnecting with my friend and she's given me flowers. And I've taken that moment and I've placed it inside like a stone. And it feels like my connection to her is a permanent thing and is a felt thing. And I think that's through understanding um, Christ's invitation to me to find spirituality and, um, and withwardness uh, with a fullness in him and not an emptiness in him and the goodness that that can bring. Uh, and, and anyway, I'm going to land the plane there, but the, the deliberateness of the social bond and um, that's what I want to leave you with. It's not going to come naturally and it's certainly countercultural to put yourself out there and risk someone turning down your dinner invitation, but it's the only way you'll feel you belong.
too many things to hold these days, aren't there? Thanks so much, Chelsea. Really appreciate. Um, I love that image of the irises and that reconnection with friendship and the, the aroma in the room. That's really beautiful. I'm going to continue on um, by picking up on the theme of the intentional practice of touch. And this is very much uh, Rich Velodas is continuing his project to really broaden the frame uh, of how we think of ourselves as sexual beings. <laughs> and I, as, before I jump into it, I'm actually I'm going to tell you my punchline um, because I sense a weightiness in the room and I just want you to know where I'm going so you can be at peace. Um, <laughs> I'm going to talk about holding my Nana's hand, okay? <laughs> so, uh, so be at peace until we get there. Uh, but Rich does talk in his book. Rich, my long, long-time friend Rich. Um, Rich, <laughs> he, he does begin this section of the book uh, by talking about uh, the book, The Body Keeps the Score. Many of you will know that book. Um, Bessel van der Volk, Bessel van der Kolk, sorry. Um, and, and, and he does begin with that acknowledgement of just the pain that some of us have experienced um, through unhealthy or improper touch. Um, and, and he names the ways that that has even been true within the church. And um, I don't know people's stories here, but um, I'm not going to say too much on it, but I just want to acknowledge that, that there's, this, is, this is holy ground. This is um, a tender place and a place to tread carefully. Um, and, I, and I do want to do that. But I want us to lean into this question, which I think is where, where Velodus goes. And it's this question of how might we restore healthy touch as an intentional practice in our lives? And so as I read, uh, the, the story of the woman with the issue of blood came to mind for me. And I went back to my Bible and read a few different versions of, of this story. And of course, um, you might know this, this, uh, this story shows up in all of the Gospels. It's a really important story. Uh, that Jesus wants to tell with a high degree of um, continuity between the different versions, actually, that the different gospel writers uh, kind of tell. And you'll remember the story. Jesus is on his way to Jairus' house where his daughter, um, his 12-year-old daughter, um, is dying and, and, and needs help, needs Jesus' presence and his healing touch. All of the crowds are around him as he goes to this house and there's a moment in time where he senses that power has gone from him, that someone has touched him. And he's curious about this, who has touched me? And we hear the story of this woman who has been bleeding for 12 years. Um, Mark uh, doesn't shy away from this particular telling. He, he talks about how, how she has suffered a great deal at the hand of many doctors. The doctors that she has seen have not helped her. They've actually made things worse. Um, it's taken all of her money. <laughs> and there's this moment where he, he, he looks around and he says, who has touched me? Who has touched me? Not in a way of calling out or shaming, but he's curious. He wants to know and he wants to see and he wants to name this individual. And so this woman, we're told that she uh, kneels at his feet and she tells the whole truth. I love that phrase. What a beautiful thing to come to Jesus and tell him the whole truth. <laughs> I wonder how often we do that. But I wonder if that whole truth included for her a reflection on the pain of her illness. She would have been, of course, richly unclean for that entire 12 years. She would have not have been allowed into community. Um, she would have been alienated, ostracized, very much outside of the community. She would have been economically excluded, having spent all of her money, all of this on top of the debilitating illness that she had. 
And so I want us to just notice what Jesus says to this woman as he seeks to name her, to see her, that it wasn't sufficient to just heal her physical condition. That had already happened. The text says that when she touches him, she instantly knew in her body that she had been healed. But Jesus wants to do something more, and he wants to restore her to a place in community um, that she is seen and known and named within that communal space, that she has not made Jesus unclean. (laughs) He has made her well and has restored her to a place in community. And so I'm struck in that story uh, by the power and the practice of touch to restore to us a sense of community and a sense of belonging. And I reflect on uh, some of my first years in Vancouver, actually, been here nearly 14 years now. Is it nearly or is it after? I forget. Um, Been here a long while. And and I remember just an incredible sense of loneliness for years when I first came. And I think, in retrospect, couldn't have realized, um, you know, to to draw forward on Hillary again, just just the importance of my physical body, (laughs) of being touched, of being known and of being seen and of being in relationship in a way that someone can touch you or squeeze you in a way that says, you mean something to me. (laughs) We're in this together. And so I was grateful for those moments when a hug or a squeeze was offered in that sort of way. And the other thing that I think about here, and here we get to my my conclusion, uh, Hannah Gadsby style, but I just, I love seniors. I love older folks. And uh, I was very close with my own nana when I was growing up. I love my nan, Thelma Violet Reese. And uh, she, she was widowed, actually, at the age of about 36 or 37, when my, my own father was only 15. Um, she never remarried through her whole life. And she was, um, she was just a great grandmother. We would sit on the floor and play games. We'd sit between her lap, and she'd help us learn to knit and, and things like this. Um, But one thing I loved as I grew even into my teenage years was just to sit with my nana and to just hold her hand. And I think so much is communicated through such a simple gesture, particularly for older folks and for folks who maybe don't have constant touch. I imagine there's parents, mums in the room who were like, oh, for the love of a moment where I'm not being touched. Um, that's not my reality, but I, can, I, I, I do know that feeling of the absence of touch and the longing for it. And I, and I think about our seniors um, in that way. And I think about the way that that communicated. You know, I was, I was a teenager. I'm sure I should have been off running around doing other things or something. But I love to be with my nana. I love to sit and hold her hand. I love to offer her my presence in that way. I said, I'm here with you. <laughs> it, was a, it was a way of saying, I give you my time. I'm not rushing somewhere else. I have nowhere else to go. And it was a way of offering connection, that you're real and that you matter. (laughs) And in a way that society, I think, pushes seniors further and further to the margins, um, just as one expression of of people who can be on the edges, to say, "You're, you're, you're part of the community. You matter to me. You belong. And that the expression of that physical touch, what that does uh, to communicate that. So I don't have as many seniors in my life these days, but if you have any I can borrow, then let me know, and I'll be sure to come hang out. Um, But whenever I get the chance, I do love to sit in unhurried ways, to hold a hand, (laughs) and let these folks know that they're loved and that they continue to have a place in the community. 
And so may you too know the power and grace of healthy touch as an intentional practice in your life. Thank you, Carrie and Chelsea and Nelson. So good to uh, hear what Villadas uh, has shared in his book through your lens, and I'm going to try and bring something through my particular lens. I recognize I bring a, a lens of, that's shaped by my, my gender, my age, my culture, my race, my own experience, but I hope that something of what I share from this book as I interact with it and engage with it, touches your experience. And I've really been looking forward to talking about something that sadly we don't talk enough about in the church, and that's the final practice of making love. And my punchline, if, uh, I'll, I'll get to it. You can take that a whole bunch of ways. Anyhow, um, what, what I really want you to hear from this, and I think it's really underlining something Nelson said earlier too, and that is God in his and her goodness created our sexuality, created human intercourse, and does not want us to have shame about any of this. And sadly, the church has spent a whole lot of time um, in secrecy and almost making things dirty, shaming, moralizing, even condemning. And that's so sad. Because God puts in each one of us this deep longing to be known, to be touched, to be loved. And God made us sexual beings. God has given us words and a mind to express things to our loved ones. God has given us emotions to feel things. And he's given us bodies to express our love. Jesus says, when we unite with one another in making love, we become one flesh. Now, how good is that? God creates sexual intimacy to give and receive love, and that's why we call it making love. And what God has intended for good and for human flourishing, the evil one has tried to twist with a counterfeit. Nelson named some of the D4 messages. I'll add a few of my own. One is, it's all about me and my pleasure. The more pleasure I have, the better the sex. Or our sexuality, sex is something we consume. Or it doesn't matter who or when or what. It's all natural. What's the harm? And then ultimately, the really deeply deformed message says God does not want you to be fulfilled. That's why God has placed restrictions. It's for God's pleasure and your misery. The counterfeit version of the evil one has little to do with love. Bodies are objectified and we dehumanize the other and ourselves. And when it gets out of control, as we often see in that downward spiral of pornography, it can get really violent as well. The counterfeit version is a horrific lie. It never satisfies our deepest longings. We sing, you are for and not against us. God is for us. The one who knit us together in our mother's womb, 
knows what is best for us. Jesus says in uh, John 15, 11, I have said these things to you so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. So let's look at four things that Villadas has to say about making love. First of all, he says, lovemaking requires the protective context of covenant marriage. Now, that may not be a popular message in today's culture, but let's look at why does he say that. First of all, when we make love, we make ourselves extremely vulnerable. We risk being seen literally and figuratively. We put ourselves out there, leaving the cocoon of safety to trust the other. And we communicate our physical needs, the things we want and like and don't like. We risk a lot of pain and deep disappointment when we give ourselves over to another without the presence of covenantal love. And then Villadas says, lovemaking takes a lot of practice. He quotes a pastor friend of his who's been married for 50 years, and he says, lovemaking takes a lifetime. Now, I've only been married for 45 years, but I'll say amen to that. <laughs> yeah. If this intimate, vulnerable, one-flesh relationship breaks or ends, we don't go back to square one. We start with a deficit. Can I trust again? Can I give the deepest part of myself? Now, I know I've lived long enough, talked long enough, and experienced long enough to know that all of us, at one time or another, have tried to fill that deep human longing in the fast food counterfeit sort of way. And if we think we're perfect, then just listen to Jesus, who says, even if we looked lustfully at one another, we're guilty of committing adultery. We've all taken shortcuts and counterfeits that are at best hollow and at worst destructive to ourselves and to others. So we carry our wounds. And as Nelson mentioned, some of us carry the deep, deep wounds of sexual abuse. Yet despite that, there is absolutely nothing that can separate us from the love of God. There is no part of our past that cannot be healed or redeemed. Because we have all fallen, there's no need for us to moralize with each other, but rather to seek healing and grace with each other. Let us move away from shaming of ourselves. Let us rather extend grace and mercy to ourselves and to our siblings in Christ. Now, Veladas talks about lovemaking outside the bedroom. And by that, he's not referring to the kitchen or the dining room, though he says that's not a bad idea, <laughs> but rather all of life. My wife, Suzanne, uh, has a favorite thing. She says, foreplay begins at breakfast. <laughs> so, and, and what this means is love, what happens in the bedroom is a culmination of what happens throughout our day and our lives. The play, the touch, the words, the kindness, Conversely, if we've been abusive, selfish, um, ignoring our spouse, it's really hard to make love. The best we can do maybe is some fast food sex, and yeah, that can happen in marriage too. Lovemaking is a communication of our love 
to one another. And this needs a foundation. Lovemaking is uh, not just an activity, it's communication. It's something you, it's not something you do, but rather something you say. And what is it that you're saying? You're saying, I see you, I know you, you are lovable, you're treasured, I love you. Am I lovable? Can you love me too? Reduced to an act, sex is consumptive and objectifying, but expressed as the communication of love, it is a joining with God to give to your spouse the love that God has placed in us. Thus, lovemaking is profoundly spiritual as well. I think that God delights in our joy and love expressed to one another. And that brings us to the last thing that Villadas says about lovemaking, which is that it reveals God. In 1 John 4.16, we read that God is love, and all who live in love live in God. In a very real sense, when we love deeply enough to become one flesh with all of the vulnerability, freedom, faithfulness, and connection, we get lit in on the deep love of God for us and his desire for union with us. I might add that lovemaking might just be a little foretaste of heaven. Um, You know, so many analogies in Scripture of God's relationship with us are around the marital relationship. Jesus as the bridegroom and the church as the bride. Villadas sees lovemaking as Eucharistic. We give our bodies to the other as Christ has given his body for, for us. And lovemaking is missional. Out of that furnace of deep love that a couple is able to cultivate over a lifetime comes new fresh love to give to a hurting and lonely world. I still have a bunch of questions um, that, I, that I wrestle with. Uh, one of those is how can we as the body of Christ help each other heal from our sexual wounds and pursue wholeness? And, and, and the gap between when someone reaches puberty and the, day, and the ages that we are typically marrying nowadays, that's widening and widening. What do we do with our deep sexual urges? And what would God want for those who are single, whether they're cisgendered or queer, and long to find a life partner and haven't found one yet? What do we say to them? Questions. I want to end with uh, a quote from indigenous Ojibwe author Richard Wagamis um, that's in Willadas that I just loved. It goes like this. I don't want to touch you skin to skin. I want to touch you deeply beneath the surface where our real stories lie. Touch you where the fragments of our story are where the sediment of things that shaped us forms the verdant delta of our human story. I want to bump against you and feel the rush of contact and ask important questions and offer compelling answers so that together we might learn to live beneath the surface 
where the current bears us forward deeper into the great ocean of shared experience. This is how I want to touch and be touched, through beingness, so that someday I might discover that even the skin remembers. Thank you. Nelson, back to you. Thanks so much, Chelsea and Carrie and Peter. One more quick gospel story as we wrap up today. This is from John chapter 8. You've heard it before. At dawn, he, that is Jesus, appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, till only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. As often as I read this, which is probably the most well-known story of sexual sin in all of scripture, I keep asking, where was the man? <laughs> Why wasn't he dragged in as well? Wasn't he involved in the sin too, or was he part of the setup? The text reveals the whole scene was meant to be a trap for Jesus, and it sure looks like it was a case of entrapment for the woman as well. These are questions for another sermon, but they had to be voiced. I wanted to end this part of the series with Jesus bent down near the ground because this is how Jesus always meets us exactly where we are, as we are, in the fragments of our being, to borrow language from Wagamese, without condemnation. Neither do I condemn you, he says. Go and leave your life of sin or go and sin no more. Now, religious legalism would deduce from this that what Jesus means is go and sin no more or I will condemn you. Which, to say it plainly, is terrible theology. But besides such silliness, how should we understand Jesus? If he doesn't mean go be sinless, what does he mean? It depends on what sin is. Depends on what missing the mark means. It depends on what the mark is. My friend Brad Jerzak offers some wonderful reflections here that I want to share with us. He says, if the mark is moral perfection, unwavering trust, perfect obedience, ritual hygiene, and untainted holiness, 
of course she would continue to sin because we all fall short of those marks. And in that sense, she would go on sinning. But if the mark is her love union with Christ, his embrace of unwavering love, enduring mercy, and saving grace, I suspect she never left his embrace again. I could imagine her stumbling again and again, but never again, hiding in shame, as did Adam, or slaving again, as did the prodigal brothers. I could imagine Jesus' words, go and sin no more, being for her not a legal demand, but a creative command, similar to let there be light. And there was light. Y'all, what if that's the mark? So sure, she could mess up. But from that day forward, what if it were entirely possible she would not fail? She could commit particular sins, but would never return to alienation from God or slavery to sin. She would know radical forgiveness as love's liberating power to set her free and keep her free. And what if we, who live in a messed up relationship with all kinds of misguided scripts and messages, hiding beneath layers of shame, bent down under the crippling weight of memories we can't erase? What if the love of Christ is a light that's been turned on in our divine parent's house? And the thing we most need to know is that we never need to leave the house again. That if somehow we ever find ourselves tripped up on the fragments of our humanity, we can always be reoriented toward God's welcome. I'm convinced that we regularly need the reminder that this story offers, that it's forgiveness and redemption that restore us to the true mark, which is our union to Christ, or in Christ to God's unfailing love. So to put it another way, rehearsing this story is a way of engaging in the practice of anchoring ourselves in the love that never fails. So as we prepare to come to the table, I'd like to lead you in a prayer that also helps us in this practice. I'm going to put it up on the screen. I invite you to take a moment to read it silently. And then if you'd like to join me in reading it aloud, I'll lead us in that in just a moment. So we'll put it up and have a look. you'd like to, please join me. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And sometimes they do. Mother, forgive me. I know not what I do. And sometimes I do. Christ, when I was your enemy, you forgave me. You gave your life for me. Christ, help me forgive as you forgave. Help me forgive my enemies. Help my victims forgive me. Help me forgive even myself.